My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we didn't have a video introducing it this week, um, but our lead pastor, Rich Warner, um, we've reached the halfway point of his sabbatical. He is getting refreshed and renewed. Um, right, Becky? Awesome. So, and we just love that he is getting recharged so he could come love and lead us as a church family better than ever before. Um, and that's awesome. So, uh, while he's been away, we've had a group of people, a diverse group of people coming and sharing, and I have so appreciated just hearing the different voices and the different perspectives, and we're actually going to continue that through the rest of the summer. Um, what's going to be happening today is this. We're going to be ending our Ephesians series um, and actually launching a new series all in the same uh, message, and I promise it can be done. But uh, for the rest of the summer in this new series we're going to be having, we're going to be having people primarily from here, from our church family, uh, come and share. People like Melissa Elsner is going to be preaching next week, and we're excited about that. Um, my buddy Howie, who gave uh, announcements this morning, is going to be preaching. So it's going to be a great series over the summer. Um, looking at uh, the Apostles' Creed, specifically understanding what it is that we believe. The video you just watched was um, a video that read through was called the Nicene Creed which is an iteration of the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit later. But before we do, let's pick up with our group of people in the town of Ephesus called the Ephesians. We spent the last three months going through this short book that is actually a letter written from the Apostle Paul who was in prison at the time that he wrote to this church in the city of Ephesus. More than any other letter that he wrote, this book encompasses what it means to actually be the church, what it means to become the bride and body of Christ, and as a result, what it looks like for the church to actually bring God's kingdom. So over the last three months, we have spent time, I don't know if you've known this or not, but every single week that you've sat in here, we have explored what it looks like to become the church and bring God's kingdom. Because God in his grand design and as creative as he was, like his plan, which is perfect, was intended that these two things would happen. That his kingdom would be brought as a group of broken people formed community and became the church that reflected the image of his son Jesus. And so we saw from the beginning of the book uh, what it meant and to actually be adopted into this family. And then we saw what it looks like for this community to actually be unified and united together. We talked about how this body of people, this group of people, uh, faced more hurdles than any other community when it came to trying to form new community. They had socioeconomic uh, struggles. They had uh, different places in society. They had racial problems. They had uh, generational problems. They were a group of people that did not have any reason to be unified. Yet we see Paul cut straight to the heart and speak to the truth of what actually unifies the church. And it wasn't just for the the church in this community in Ephesus, but it actually is transcendent through time and history. And we find ourselves here today, 2,000 years later, because of this message that went out, still talking 
about the same Jesus, still being transformed by the same gospel, still worshiping the same God, still having access to the same hope and peace and every other promise that the God of the universe invites us into. But it's all centered around this truth, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul, as he has spent his time in this book, rallying these people together, helping them understand what unity actually looks like and what would keep them unified, he ends with a charge. It's not a warning as much as it is an understanding that the battle wasn't over. Victory is already won, but the battle isn't over. And he knows that his life is going to end and he's trying to figure out what in the world can I offer to these people that will not only compel them but keep them unified for generations to come. What can I do to equip these people to take all that they've learned, all that I've taught them, all of the eyewitness accounts from the 12 disciples and the apostles, what can I give them to help equip them to fight this fight. And so we're going to close out Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 today, looking at the armor of God. Now, if you grew up around the church, maybe you could think back to Sunday school and flannel graphs, and uh, it was fun to put the armor of God on uh, the soldier. But this is, this is so much more than that. He says this in verse 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We'll stop there. Knowing that there's going to be a temptation and an opportunity to be strong in their own strength and to rely on themselves, Paul says, be strong in the Lord because it's only in his strength and his power that you are going to be able to endure any of this. It's only by his strength alone that you and your broken humanity can live out this side of eternity what it means to be the church. So he says this, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So now he makes it very clear that there is a spiritual realm and spiritual warfare is a real thing. And he's encouraging these Christians who actually probably had more external um, oppression and external persecution and external battles to fight than maybe we have today. So I think it's timely and fitting today that he's reminding us and we're reminded by this scripture that the battle we fight is very much unseen. It's very much in our minds, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our emotions, in our relationships. It's all those dynamics played out by how culture and society shape our thinking and shape our, our behavior. How we perceive 
our relationships with other people and, and how we get offended and, and how we uh, think where we're safe and where we belong and, and where we actually have community, where we're inclusive and exclusive, where we, de- we decide and determine to divide and segregate. This is the world we live in. It's, it's very clear that the things we're fighting, especially in this country as we get ready to celebrate Independence Day, like we have freedoms that this church family would never have known. This church family and those today around the world, they'll never experience. And so the battle that we fight, it may be different, but it's still very real. So Paul encourages this church. He says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Put on every piece of God's armor. So to this group of people, this little Christian outpost, this community of faith, that he just inaugurated and he's trying to encourage to to withstand all of the social pressure and the culture pressure and the societal pressure and the political persecution that they have being handed down by the Roman Empire to, to try and snuff out this Jesus movement. He's saying, hey, like there's some things you can do. You got to rely heavy on each other. So here's what it means to be united together because if you feel like you're fighting this battle alone, you'll lose before you begin. And now he's saying, here's some things that you actually can do. Here's some things that are in your control. But there's a catch. You have to be willing to do it. And you're not going to be willing to do it if you only know about it. You're not going to do it unless you believe it. See, knowing about the armor of God isn't isn't what's difficult. It's truly believing that it is what it says it is, and God is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he said he's going to do that will determine whether or not we actually take action and do anything about it. So he repeats, and the theme isn't so much about the armor that he's going to draw this beautiful uh, illustration between being prepared for this spiritual battle that we are in to fight, even though we already know it's won to a Roman centurion that in that time was the most elite fighting force on the face of the earth. So in a kingdom that's called to selflessness, humility, and meekness, he's saying you're going to be prepared like the toughest soldier in the world. He says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. You may have heard this as the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. This wasn't just a belt to hold up your pants. See, this belt held all the armor together. It actually, the, 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 the breastplate would fall off if it wasn't for the belt. And this belt would hold the sheath for the sword. This belt would be central around the core of the soldier. 
So for us, the belt of truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of who he is, we need to be grounded. We need to be held securely by something. And in a day and an age where truth has become relative, it's up to us to determine and discern the truth of who God is and God's word, his holy scripture that's given to us as a gift to be our authority. Because it's only upon that truth that we have anything to do with righteousness. You see, righteousness is just a big fancy word that means right standing. See, righteousness is the idea that we're made right with God. Righteousness is the idea of being positioned and moved from a place where you weren't in good standing to being placed front and center in right standing in the presence of the God of the universe. See, the reason we need the truth of Scripture because it tells us pretty plainly and clearly that there's absolutely no way we could attain that on our own. It is only because of the person and the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have anything to do with righteousness. It was his work and his righteousness, and then a big fancy word that said it's imputed onto us, meaning when God sees us, if we have placed our hope, our faith, our trust in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and not the sin that separated us. That's good. See, that same sin that we think is going to come up and it's going to uh, mar that righteousness and make it dirty again. No, 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 no. Like, it was forgiven once for all. Past, present, future. So now, we get to live in the world and we get to operate as community and we get to advance this kingdom as people that live understanding there was nothing I could do to be made right, but Jesus did it for me, which is crazy. And because of that, I am going to live my life I'm going to believe differently, and I'm going to live a transformed life. He continues to encourage this church, and he says, For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. Why do we need, how, how do we get peace from shoes? What do we need to be prepared for? And, and how does peace come from the good news? Well, let me explain. When you're in times where life is uncertain, you're caught off guard, things aren't going your way, something unexpected comes up, that person that you trusted and loved uh, did something selfish and unloving and hurt you, our world can be shaken in an instant by diagnosis, by a phone call, a conversation. You know these moments. And it all gets shaken. And we're sent spiraling. I've stood on this platform and preached God's word pretty vulnerably and given you an inside look into my brain which just constantly spins and goes and it's easy to do. And there's something profound about this peace that the Bible says transcends all understanding. That guards our hearts and our minds according to Christ Jesus alone. What does that have to do with our feet? Well, what are we standing on? What are we planted on? See, the shoes, the sandals 
the flip-flops, if you will, that he's referencing here aren't like my super feet uh, flip-flops with uh, extra arch support. No, these were Roman centurion sandals that were strapped on with leather, and on the bottom they had driven nails in and so that they would have secure footing when they faced opposition in the battle. So that not only they could get over hard terrain and they could climb over mountains and move together, but when it was in the heat of battle, when they were being pressed up against and charged by the enemy, their footing was solid. They could dig into the ground. In the same way, the gospel, the good news, not just that we believe as, as our faith, but what it actually means for you individually. That's the most comforting, peaceful story that we could ever know or remember. See, the gospel of peace that comes from the good news. How easily we forget. How easily we can lose sight of what this all means. But it's when we find ourselves in these places of uncertainty and unrest and anxiousness that the peace of God can swoop in and remind us not only of how he's already rewritten the story, but how the gospel continues to write a better story. It's a story in which he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm right here. And it's a story that we know hasn't ended yet. It's a story that we actually know confidently where it's headed. We may not know what's along the way, but we know where we're going. That's the type of confidence he's, he's saying by strapping on these shoes of peace that come from the good news. And it's then that we'll be fully prepared. We'll be prepared knowing that when we walk out our door, we don't know what's going to come later that day. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We could try. We could, I mean, if you're like me, you can have plans A through Z, and they're good ones. Doesn't mean they're going to happen. But there's something about being prepared, knowing where our faith and our hope and our trust actually lies that gives us this confidence. He continues in verse 16. He says, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Hold up the shield of faith. Now, these Roman shields weren't, these, weren't like the Greek ones you see in like uh, Greek mythology where uh, it's this small little round thing because they're running around doing parkour. They're like gymnastics trying to fight people in battle. No, these were like full-on, cover-your-whole-body shields. And these shields were significant, especially in the context with which this is being read. Keep in mind, this isn't for people to just think about themselves individually. This has implications for the church family communally. See, it's not like he's saying, hey, when the fiery darts of the enemy are shot at you, which they will be because he's not excited about you following Jesus. He's saying when those come, and they will, 
It is behind the shield of faith that you will be able to cover your whole body and hide behind. But not just hide behind to stay hidden. Because these shields, when the Roman soldiers would line up shield to shield, side by side with other soldiers, they would not only cover themselves, but they would be able to advance and move forward. So in this idea that we are compelled to bring the kingdom of God, it is the shield of faith that we have, carrying each other, that we move the gospel forward into the world. We, we aren't intended to live lives where we meet Jesus and just stay there. Where we understand, oh, I am in the middle of brokenness, and, but God wants to restore and redeem that, and then we just stay there. No, it's a faith that's meant to be grown and cultivated, and the way that that happens is both individually and because God created us to follow him in community with people that have similar stories, different stories, people that have shorter journeys and longer journeys, people that have been following Jesus really well for a long time that look a lot more like him than maybe you do. But because they look like him, they invite you to watch how they live life and to walk alongside them in grace and compassion. He concludes, he says in verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is really important that we, get, we catch. See, this helmet of salvation is covering the head, which is in reference to our mind. I feel like I've talked a lot from up here about perspective, and there's something powerful about having a perspective that is protected and guarded by the truth of salvation because it actually gives us this thing called hope. Have you tried living out life or faith or trying? Have you tried to believe in anything that, without hope? Without confidence? See, and this isn't just to fill your head with knowledge and understanding, but to know that the, the more you know, the more knowledge we're able to gather about the person and the work of Jesus. And we're able to understand and reflect back on and see how he's walked with us every step of the way of our lives, what that does is it actually gives our faith more and more confidence. But again, knowing isn't what leads to action. It's belief. See, the difference between knowing and believing is, is this. Believing moves us to action to actually do something, whereas knowing doesn't always mean doing how often do we know about something know we should do something but don't do anything about it that ever happened or or how often do you find yourself this is this is one i think the enemy really likes to get us caught with in this cycle of guilt and shame how often you know you're not supposed to do something but you continue to find yourself doing it over and over and over again See, these are the types of attacks that we're being warned about. Paul is being clear, similar to how Jesus 
prepared his followers before he left. He said, hey, in this world, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. But you also don't need to be overwhelmed by it. Why? Not because you can handle it on your own, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. There's hope in Jesus, and there's hope in Christ-centered community. There's hope in knowing that we weren't created to be handed burdens that we will ever carry alone. There's hope that by receiving the helmet of salvation, and, and what that means is understanding and knowing that you're not going to carry a burden in this life alone unless you choose to. Because the invitation is to hand it to Jesus and to be honest enough to let other people love you enough to carry it with you. But they won't unless you let them. I think this knowing versus believing thing can, maybe this will illustrate it. Um, you're noticing I'm wearing a bracelet today. And I don't wear bracelets. I don't wear watches. I don't wear anything like that. Um, I've said it. Um, and if you haven't figured it out, I have really bad ADD. So things like this really distract me from being able to stay focused. Um, but um, yesterday I got hit with like the worst man cold flu. Um, it's the first of the summer. Um, I turn 32 tomorrow. So it's like the worst birthday gift to myself. Um, except for it's confirming everything I've always been told, which is you are going to start to break down. <laughs> so now that I know what getting old feels like, I feel, here's what I know. I know that I have a wife who has some crazy ideas, such as there's these like magical potions not medicine like the doctors give you, but magical potions called essential oils. <laughs> I'm just curious, like any other husbands, like your wife knows she's into the potions. And so these essential, here's what I know about them. I know that um, every so often my wife, like uh, I spend a lot of money. Like it leaves my bank account. And then my wife goes and she has this like really shady meetup with someone in a parking lot. Um, it just, it doesn't look good. And what happens is she comes home and I spent a lot of money. And what do I get? This little vial. I'm like, the math doesn't add up. Like. And then I find out that it has to go in this thing that's called a diffuser last service I called it a mystifier <laughs> which I mean it works so then a diffuser and these diffusers are going all over my house like if you weren't a normal guest and you just came over to my house you think we were having a rock concert like fog machines like <laughs> like <laughs> and here's what so my wife believes that so this is like not just they believe this stuff. This isn't just any leather. This is special leather that absorbs the essential oils. And I can wear it, and as I waft it around, they're getting into my body. So I'm talking extra with my hands today just because I'm trying to get better. 
So here's what I know. I know that uh, when my wife diffuses the oils, I'll, yeah, I can start feeling a little better. I think it's all placebo. But I, I, I know that my wife believes this really works so much so that she went and did something about it. She bought me a bracelet. She put the drops of oil, three, not four. It's a science. Like, I am pretty concerned that the FDA is not involved in any of this stuff. Like, and then, so I, I then know that because my wife believes it, here's what I can believe. I can believe that if I wear this bracelet, my wife's going to be happy. And I can believe that when my wife's happy, everybody wins. <laughs> Instead of just knowing or thinking, hey, maybe this might work, and putting it, leaving it on my nightstand or putting it in my pocket because, one, I don't want to be distracted, or two, I don't want to get made fun of for wearing like this bracelet because... Yeah, an essential oils bracelet. So they haven't kicked in yet because I still feel pretty crummy. But the air around me smells really good. So that, that paints a picture of the difference between knowing and believing. When we believe something, we're actually more moved to take action and do something about it. See, and so that is how he is bringing and ending his letter to this church. Uh, for those of you that are technical people, there are a couple verses after this, which he's just giving salutations. We're not going to go into those. But here's what we see him ultimately doing. Ultimately, the church had to believe in something to put anything on. They had to believe in something that was worth fighting for. They had to believe in something that was going to be attacked. They had to believe in an enemy that was real. They had to believe in a hope that was worth fighting for for the future. They had to believe in the power and the strength that they knew they didn't have on their own. They had to believe that the same God who was working in them was going to work through other people that shared a common belief in Jesus Christ. They had to believe that it didn't matter how hard it got because they were about to lose businesses, friendships, family members, and for some of them, their lives. They had to believe it was worth putting something on. Not externally, but internally for their heart and for their mind. Because the sake of eternity for others was on the line. See, he ends this, this with a charge for prayer. And it's not focused on the individual. What he had just done was he talked about what they could do individually to prepare for battle. But now when he talks to prayer, he's not encouraging them to focus on themselves. Listen. It says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. See? Being tuned into the Holy Spirit was going to help believers be mindful of the other believers around them that were fighting the same fight. That maybe sometimes they were going to lose hope or lose sight of where they were headed. Maybe they forgot their helmet of salvation, their belt of truth. They forgot some piece of armor. And they needed somebody else 
to remind them, you're not fighting this alone. The battle's already won. His grace is sufficient. His goodness is enduring. He's present. We're going somewhere. To be alert of those that maybe felt like they were carrying this burden alone, to be reminded that they weren't. I think one of the most beautiful things of of our entire invitation to follow Jesus is that he doesn't invite us to do it alone. He invites us to do it with people like you and like me who've lived life, who's who's lived different stories, who have seen his work and presence in different ways. All to encourage one another and carry each other's burdens. See, they gathered around these core truths They were stated in creeds, and they were shared in common. To be sent to others and celebrated in the community. See, our summer series that we're going to go into is is a continuation of this book of Ephesians that looks at becoming the church to bring the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at um, what we believe. The series is called We Believe. And we're going to actually go week by week and unpack this thing called the Apostles' Creed, which is actually looking at the common convictions of a community of people who were compelled. Ephesians sums up a community of people compelled by common convictions. Saying, our convictions, what we have in common is this. And because of this, we're compelled to do something in this world. And what we're going to do, because the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to look specifically at the Nicene Creed, which is a, a later like iteration of that creed, to include uh, language that preserved and protected the deity of Jesus. What we're going to do is look at some, at, at some statements of faith that are fundamental and foundational. They are primary non-negotiables of the Christian faith. So what that means is it doesn't matter your background, your denomination, your tradition, your liturgy. Uh, It doesn't matter if you claim to be Christian. These are the truths that all Christian faith are built upon. Because here we are sitting 2,000 years later in Ferndale, Washington, talking about the same thing that was talked about in homes in ancient Greece in Judea, in Samaria. They didn't have denominations. They didn't have these traditions that were shaped around uh, distinctives. They were just founded and united around these core truths. What's the significance of that? It's incredibly unifying. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we hear from God's word, to be reminded of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what that means for today, tomorrow, and eternity. Amen?